Hello, this is episode 111 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. I'm Andrew Kleiman. In the main segment of this episode, I'll be interviewing Rob Breyer about his new book, Accounting for Crises. It's a Marxist history of American accounting theory from the Great Depression all the way until the Great Recession that erupted about 15 years ago. Some listeners might be familiar with related books that Rob has written, like Accounting for Value. In the new book, Accounting for Crises, Rob explains why both the Great Depression and the Great Recession were especially severe in the United States. His explanation draws on accounting theory and history, as well as Karl Marx's crisis theory, his actual crisis theory, not potted versions. Central to Rob's explanation are the interplay of the tendential fall in the rate of profit, moral hazard, we'll talk about that, swindling, and the role that good old American accounting theory played. We recorded that interview on January 31 of this year. But first, in a segment that Gabriel Donnelly and I recorded this past Sunday, February 18, we discussed Donald Trump getting Ngorand in the financial midsection. In Judge Ngorand's decision handed down last Friday against Trump and his corporation in the New York civil fraud trial, we also talk about the jury's decision last month in the latest case that E. Jean Carroll brought against Trump. Both judgments really grab him by the purse strings. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of this podcast series, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and to provide Radio Free Humanity with much-needed donations. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative. But the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI itself. Next up, Gabriel and I discussing the decisions against Trump in the New York fraud case and E. Jean Carroll's latest case. Hi, this is Andrew. With me is co-host Gabriel Donnelly. Today is February 18, and we're going to be talking about the decision in the Trump civil trial against the Trump organization that came down two days ago. From Arthur Ngoron was the judge, and Trump was ordered to pay approximately $355 million plus interest. And with the interest accumulated, the tab is going to be about 450 and change million dollars. And that's coming on the heels of a massive judgment in another civil case. In this instance, it was a jury trial where he defamed and raped Eugene Carroll. So the jury came in on that case and said he's got to cough up $83.3 million on top of $5 million that he was already liable for in an E.G. Carroll case. Put all of this together, we're looking at about $540 million. 
apart from the big numbers here, Gabriel, or maybe that's the big takeaway here. What's what's your reaction? Definitely the the big numbers is it's got to be a big reaction because that's big big chunk of change. I know that even if he were to have to fork it all over right now, it wouldn't lead to a bankruptcy for the former president because lots of his money is tied up in real estate. It's a serious hit. And there's another part of the ruling you didn't mention there, which is that Judge Ngoran ruled that Trump can't hold leadership positions and businesses in New York for the next three years, which is actually less than the prosecutor was asking for. The prosecutor wanted him totally banned from holding leadership positions in businesses in New York. Also included in that, some of his sons have to cough up penalty fees. Donald Trump Jr. and Eric both hit with $4 million, and the bookkeeper, Weisselberg, $1 million. So that's on top of the amount that Donald Trump Sr. owes. Right. And so there has to be some reshuffling in the Trump organization due to that part of the ruling. Now Trump's got two babysitters, so-called, two different people who are going to be overseeing all of the actions and potential actions of the Trump organization. So that, on top of the fact that the father and the sons can't do business anymore for three years or two years, the Trump organization is, as we know it, not any longer. It could come back, but it's hard to believe. I think we should give a little context for our listeners on what this case is about. This one is fundamentally about financial fraud. It's about Trump and colluding with other people and misrepresenting the assets of the Trump organization and, most importantly, the value of the Trump organization when going to get loans and getting sweetheart rates that he shouldn't have been getting because of this misrepresentation and it being a deliberate, calculated fraud to get these rates. Fraud is just not good. <laughs> it's just not good for anybody in the financial system. Yes, everybody else gets hurt when these people get loans at sweetheart rates because everybody else has to then pay more for loans than they otherwise would, and that makes prices higher and so forth. So it's not like this is victimless. I hear a lot, this is what everybody does. They're only going after him because he's Trump. And big part of me wants to say to that, yeah, so what? <laughs> they should go after him because he's Trump. He deserves to be going after because he's Trump. The issue of, well, everybody does this, I'm always reminded of the part from Catch-22, the book Catch-22. One of the guys wants to get out of the army. Why? Because they're shooting at him. And people say, look, they're shooting at everybody. And he's like, why does that matter? <laughs> everybody does it. Yeah, why does that matter? It's still fraud. We need to have him be taking hits in every possible arena and be made to look exactly as fraudulent, criminal, small, petty, and powerless as he really is. Powerless. Powerless, yeah. That's a big, big thing. That's a, that's a very big thing because that image of power and wealth and invincibility is, is key to his cult-like status. And the more he's on the defensive, the better. In this case, he really got in Goron. In this case, in the Eugene Carroll case, they, they grabbed him by the purse strings. When you're a judge and when you're a rape victim, they let you do that. You want a tic-tac? The judge said their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological, which I thought was a good way of summarizing it. The fact that these guys can't admit to what's going on doesn't indicate to the judge 
that they're going to stop the fraud. So the only other recourse for him is a big, big, big rolled up newspaper bopping them on the nose. Does this, together with the Eugene Carroll verdicts, does it bankrupt Trump? From what I can tell, no. I look at the numbers that Forbes put out, and they did an estimate of Trump's net worth, and it wasn't just a ballpark guess. It was broken down pretty finely into he owns this area of that building. It's not even the whole building. And on this property, he's got this kind of mortgage, so he owes that amount. So here's the value of what he owns here and here and here. Subtract what he owes with this loan and that loan there and there and there. And they came out to his net worth is about $2.6 billion. Cash is though, you know, 425 or so million. These judgments are more than that. And if he wants to appeal, as he obviously does, in New York State, he's got to put up the cash. So in very short while, he's going to have to put up the cash and it'll be kept in, in escrow. And then he's never going to get it back, but he's going to fight, fight, fight delay, delay, delay. He's taking a hit, big hit, more than 20% of everything he's got. And he doesn't have everything he needs in cash. So he's going to have to sell off some properties or whatever. Things are becoming tougher for him by the day. I mean, this is not yet justice, nowhere near it, but he's having a rougher and rougher time. And there are more civil cases coming down the pike in connection with January 6th. In the Capitol Police, who were injured and so forth, are bringing suit, members of Congress bringing suit. So this is not the end of the civil cases against him. So he's having a tougher and tougher time. And the takeaway from that is, of course, he never gives in. There's never contrition. There's never remorse. It's all pathological. So he's going to fight and he's going to fight to the death. He's running for president. And the reason he's running for president is he's running to stay out of prison. And he's running to reverse impending bankruptcy. Seeing some of the statements coming from the the MAGA camp, it's looking like the more and more embattled he is, the more committed the people who are committed become to their sense of being under attack, of being isolated, of a great plot being against them. It just fuels their fire. I think the question comes down to, those crucial independent voters, do they see this and view it as political or does it look bad for Trump? And I think all evidence is it just looks really bad for him. I think you're right. The only problem is when people say independent voters, well, 40% of the American public will say that they're independent. But almost all of that consists of people who either lean Democratic or lean Republican and are Democrat or Republican in all but name. These are people who just want to maintain a certain sense of independence. But in terms of ideology, who they vote for, there aren't that many independents. It's maybe 8 to 12% of the population that's actually swingy one way or the other. I think you're right that he's going to have a harder time with these swingy voters, but they're not a big part of the population. It's back to, when you talk about election prospects, it's back to, this is a game of inches. I think at the end of the day, the cases you alluded to earlier, the most important ones are the January 6th cases. Those are the ones coming down, the various ones that you mentioned, the police officer one, which will really look bad for him with 
the non-Trumpist conservatives. Um, and the Georgia case, he's trying to muddy the water and seems to be actually succeeding in muddying the water there in that case, because it's one of the worst ones they have against him. But there's a couple other January 6th related cases he's going to face leading up to, and in some cases, right before the election that are, it's just, it's hard to imagine him not emerging, looking just completely worse after those. Hi, this is Andrew, and today is January 31, 2024, and this is Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. With me today, I'm very pleased to have Rob Breyer, who is the author of Accounting for Crisis, a Marxist History of American Accounting Theory, circa 1929 to 2007. That's his newest book just published. He's an emeritus professor of accounting at Warwick Business School, part of Warwick University in Coventry, United Kingdom. He's researched and taught accounting for over 40 years. His 2017 book was called Accounting for Value in Marx's Capital, The Invisible Hand, 2019, Accounting for Value in Marx's Capital, The Missing Link. And since then, he's published two volumes of this work that's subtitled A Marxist History of American Accounting Theory. The first was called Creating the Big Mess, and that dealt with the years from around 1900 to 1929. What we're going to be talking about principally today is the link between American accounting theory, American accounting practice, and why the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Recession of about 15 years ago were so deep in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Well, thank you for inviting me. Could you outline the main arguments of the latest volume of Accounting for Crisis, your Marxist history of American accounting theory. Sure. The book gives a new explanation of capitalism's two major economic crises, the Great Recession of the 1930s and the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Why both crises began and were more severe in America, based on an accounting interpretation of Marx's theory of crisis. It explains them, as Marx did, as a consequence of the interactions between A, the falling rate of profit, B, moral hazard, and C, what he calls swindling. Its explanation is new because it adds important roles for America's exceptional accounting theory in facilitating swindling. You mentioned moral hazard. What is that? I mean the potential losses capitalists face when from hiring managers who make riskier investments than they would. Managers are less risk-inverse than owners because they are not personally liable for failures. Okay, thank you. Please continue. Crisis' underlying cause, Marx argued, was capitalist accumulation, by which I argue he meant capitalist accounting control of accumulation, of productive investment. Understanding that capitalist control accumulation through accounting reveals A, how it creates the possibility of crises, and B, accounting theory's role in producing them by allowing management discretion in preparing published accounts. Falling rates of profit in the 1920s, and again from the 1980s, I argue, encouraged management to use its discretion for accounting swindling, 
overstating profits and understating their risk, which facilitated and aggravated both crises. Why America was their epicenter is the conclusion to a long story. To tell it has required first articulating an accounting interpretation of Marxist theories of value, history, and crises, an interpretation that highlights the important roles played by accounting and the volumes of capital, particularly Marx's discovery that his theory of value explained capitalists' accounts. Second, it required using his theories to explain British and American accounting histories from the late 18th century to 2007. Accounting for Crisis is the final volume of four books on Marx and accounting. My latest two books are contributions to what accounting scholars call critical accounting, showing that capitalist calculations are socially dysfunctional. The first of these two books, Creating the Big Mess, elaborates what I call Marxian accounting. Marxian accounting uses Marxist theory of value to explain late 19th century British accounting in detail. Its valuation principles, methods and practices, which became required from the 1880s, during the 1920s, accounting theorists undermined America's late 19th century acceptance of British principles, creating what one leading authority called a big mess that many New York stock exchange companies exploited, swindling shareholders by manipulating published accounts. Accounting for crises concludes these histories with an accounting interpretation of Marx's theory of crises and uses it and Marxian accounting to explain first the influence of accounting theory and practice on the 1920s stock market boom and the 1929 crash and on the Great Depression and 1930s reforms, all in the context of a falling rate of profit. Second, it uses Marx's accounting to explain accounting theory's influence on the development of U.S. GAAP. That means generally accepted accounting principles from the 1930s to 2007. Third, it uses this history along with Marx's theory of crises to explain the accounting practices that again, in the context of a falling rate of profit, facilitated what observers usually call the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Accounting for crisis explains accounting theory's role in facilitating the financial crisis, the collapse of financial institutions and markets. But I agree with those, including you, who call the 2008-2009 economic crisis the Great Recession and argue that its underlying cause was the falling rate of profit. This then is my challenge. To make the case to a non-accounting audience that accounting is centrally important in understanding Marx's capital and in the functioning of capitalism. And I am therefore very pleased to have this opportunity to give an executive summary of accounting for crisis, an introduction to its theory, history, and main conclusions. You say that your accounting interpretation can help us to understand Marx's theory of crises. How does it do so? It follows and supports your interpretation and contradicts other leading critics interpretations, for example, by Simon Clark and David Harvey, that claim Marx had no coherent theory of crises. Accounting helps understand it, as I said, because capitalist accounting control explains Marx's conclusion that crises' underlying cause is capitalist accumulation. Capitalist accumulation means expanding capital by reinvesting profit for more profit, advancing additional capital that must realize at least the general rate of profit that is, society's total surplus value divided by its capital, 
what accountants call the required return on investment, ROI. My interpretation explains crises of the consequences of capitalist accounting control of individual capitals, using both what accountants call financial accounts, profit and loss accounts and balance sheets, and management accounts, budgets and cost controls, to control the circulation of capital to maximize the rate of profit, accountants ROI. According to this interpretation, shareholders collectively control individual capitals using published financial accounts, which management has incentives to manipulate. Whereas to control the circulation of capital through production and circulation, management needs objective rate of profit accounts. So you're saying that companies' managers keep two sets of books, the public one and the real one. They have manipulated financial accounts that are published and objective rate of profit accounts for management's own use, right? And you said that management has incentives to manipulate the published financial accounts. What are these incentives and who are they trying to fool and why? Yes, management keeps two sets of books. Management's internal accounts are the basis of the financial accounts, but the rules for constructing them allow management discretion. Management has many incentives to use its discretion to manipulate published accounts, particularly to report growing profits and to avoid reporting losses. Among them are that large and growing profits, A, justify management's pay increases and earnings-based bonuses, B, allow corporations to raise more debt by increasing what analysts call EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, and amortization, a key measure for creditors. And C, reporting increased profits can support or increase the corporation's share price. Management are fooling investors, swindling them. They know their accounting choices violate long-established capitalist principles, those first developed and enforced in late 19th century Britain, the same principles that underlie management's accounts today, which since the 1920s, I argue, accounting theory has undermined for the published financial accounts. Okay, so what's the problem? What's wrong with two sets of books? I mean, from management's point of view, it would seem to be a neat solution. It needs to know what's really going on, and it's keeping the shareholders from really knowing what's going on. Yeah, it's not a problem from the perspective of an individual company's management. It's a problem for capitalism. The company's shareholders are not in control of management, cannot hold it accountable for what shareholders call its stewardship of capital, for realized ROI. So individual capitals are out of control, and this, I argue, also contributes to crises. So you've said that you explain capitalist economic crises as the consequences of capitalists' accounting control of individual capitals, units of capital. On the face of it, Marx's theory of crises seems different. He never framed his explanation in that way. So how does your focus on capitalists' accounting control mesh with Marx's crisis theory as he himself presented it? It does so in two ways. First, accounting control to increase the rate of profit promotes capital-intensive investments to lower the cost of production by increasing labor productivity that Marx argued underlay his law of the tendential falling rate of profit, produces a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. Consistent with your refutation of Nobuo Okishio's claim that Marx's law is incorrect, 
The accounting interpretation shows that to demonstrate it, Marx, in effect, produced a series of what accountants call replacement cost accounts that, just like accountants today, calculated capital maintenance adjustments. I'll say some more about this later. Second, management resists falling rate of profit because it seeks and is accountable for target rates of profit based on earlier higher rates. This exacerbates moral hazard, encourages risk-taking, taking on more debt and risky investments, and, if possible, swindling by manipulating accounts, overstating profit and understating risk to inflate share prices, which encourages speculation. Theories aren't just so stories. I mean, they're not just appealing stories. They stand or fall by being tested and succeeding or failing the tests. So how can the theory that you've outlined be tested? Historians can test Marxist theory of crisis by investigating whether objective rate of profit accounts generated their possibility and whether manipulated published accounts facilitated and made them worse, which is my focus in accounting for crises. Okay, so we can test whether the objective internal management rate of profit accounts generated the possibility of crises and the public manipulated accounts for the shareholders facilitated the crises and made them worse. Yes, that's right. Marx didn't put it the same way you do, but you do argue that a theory of capitalist accounting control is present in Marx's crisis theory. Where in his crisis theory is there this theory of capitalist accounting control? Marx presented his theory of crises in three stages. First, towards the end of Volume 1, Marx presented his general law of capitalist accumulation, which accounting for crises interprets as workers' first accounting lesson in crises, explaining to them why wages and unemployment, the reserve army, are the dependent variables, and capitalist accumulation is the independent variable. I show in the first of the four books, Accounting for Value, that Marx's economic tableau is the profit and loss account of capitalist society, of capital in general, that Marx worked out using double-entry bookkeeping to correct and transcend Francois Cazenet's tableau. Based on Marx's economic tableau, accounting for crises constructs an accounting illustration of his general law in operation through time. These accounts show the rapid accumulation of capital draining the reserve army of labor and temporarily increasing wages, and capitalist reaction to a fall in the rate of profit by labor-saving investment that restores the army. Yeah, Marx's schemes of reproduction, very clearly, they're based on the tableau economique of Kesney, uh, Kene. Marx said that explicitly. But those schemes are in volume two of Capital. You're talking about volume one of Capital. Are you saying that the theory of capitalist accumulation as presented in volume one is also based on Kene's tableau economique? And if so, in what sense? The reproduction schemes in volume two deal with exchanges between different social groups, like the tableau did, but the discussion in volume one doesn't seem to do that. For Marx to explain his general law of capitalist accumulation in volume one, he first had to construct society's profit and loss account from its components. That is, as you put it, deal with exchanges between different social groups. To do this, Marx took Cazenet's tableau and first used double-entry bookkeeping to correct it. Second, Marx used his theory of value to transcend it 
to replace Cazenet's pre-capitalist social groups and exchanges with capitalist society. He then produced its accounts using double-entry bookkeeping. Okay, thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were saying that there are three stages of Marx's theory of crisis. Theory of capitalist accounting control is present in each stage. The first stage is this general law of capitalist accumulation. You say that the accounts of capitalist society as a whole, the total social capital, that is all implicit in Marx's discussion of that. Okay, so what are the other two stages? The second stage, accounting for crises, shows that Marx's controversial schemas of expanded reproduction in volume two are interlinked departmental profit and loss accounts, again, based on double-entry bookkeeping. This interpretation, I argue, A, supports your unbalanced growth interpretation, B, reveals that a major source of workers' precariousness in capitalism is the absence of a central controller, and C, poses the question of how capitalists collectively control production without one and the consequences. Marx's answer was his value price transformation in volume three, which accounting for value argued was his standard or target cost solution to the so-called transformation problem. Marx, in effect, I argued, explained how total social capital controls many competing individual capitals using the generator profit. And his theory of crisis in volume three explains the consequences of falling rate of profit leading to an inevitable financial and economic crisis. In short, Marx's analysis of volumes one and two show how capitalist control creates the possibility of crises, which he explained in volume three become inevitable because a falling or low rate of profit encourages risky investments, increased debt, speculation and swindling. Within swindling, by which I agree with you, he meant deceptive, unethical, unscrupulous, unprincipled, but not necessarily fraudulent behavior. Marx included manipulating accounts. In volume three, he described the British railway mania of 1845-1846 as a great railway swindle, having in volume two criticized British railway companies' accounts for confusing capital and revenue expenditure, and, vitally important, accurately measuring their rate of profit for failing to systematically charge depreciation on fixed capital, swindling shareholders by overstating profitability. Yeah, my understanding is that in German, there's one word for this kind of swindling, and there's a distinct word for fraud. They're not confused uh, the way we do it in English. But let me ask, how does this accounting-based swindling you know, deceiving shareholders by manipulating the accounts. How does that explain America's stock market crash in 1929, the boom that preceded it, and what were the roles of accounting theory in this? Having a functional accounting superstructure helps to explain why, from the 1860s, Britain had fewer financial crises and had no major economic crises. Consistent with Marxist theory that speculation and swindling would promote financial crises, but economic crises would be short because devaluing capital would promote recovery. From the mid-19th century, Britain developed what accountants called conservative accounting that revealed whether management had maintained the capital in circulation. British accounting was explicitly not for speculators, and its conservative valuation rules, particularly lower of cost or market, enforced devaluation in a crisis. From the mid-19th century to the 1930s, America, by contrast, had legally unregulated accounting, 
And during the late 19th century, it had frequent financial crises and then had the 1929 crash and the Great Depression. There, during the 1920s, framed by economist Irving Fisher's accounting theory, accounting theorists made British principles incoherent, producing what one of its leaders called a big mess. In what way did this grafting of Irving Fisher's theory onto British accounting principles create a big mess? And what was the nature of that mess? The basis of Fisher's accounting theory is not cost and realized profit, as it is for Marx and accountants, but present value, the claim that an asset's value is the discounted value of the expected cash flows, and its income or earnings is the net cash flow adjusted for changes in value, which is subjective. Accounting theories therefore use Fisher's theory to criticize British principles, which gave management discretion. Theorists proliferated accounting options and gave, as one accounting historian puts it, explanatory justifications for accepted procedure, excuses that management and accountants used to justify what they also call conservative accounting. But it was a unique American definition allowing the deliberate misstatement of assets and liabilities, which, along with other choices, allowed profit smoothing, swindling by overstating reported profits and understating their risk. In the context of a falling generator profit and historically low corporate rates, this big mess created an opportunity for accounting swindling because, for the first time, during the expansionary 1920s new era, when corporations raised unprecedented amounts of capital, the wealthy and middle classes purchased common stocks, risky equity shares, becoming and thinking of themselves as investors. In this context, Fisher's heavily promoted theory of investment, based on his accounting theory, became the popular wisdom, which had two major consequences. First, it justified valuing shares using reported earnings or income, which became the accepted nomenclature rather than profits, which encouraged management to manipulate earnings to increase share prices. Second, Fisher's theory legitimized what was actually speculation, buying shares in anticipation of price increases as investment, which traditionally had meant holding only established company shares for long-term dividends by redefining speculation to mean investment. In these ways, accounting for crises argues, Fisher's accounting theory facilitated America's exceptional late 1920s stock market boom. And it goes on to argue that his theory also underlies and delay the 1929 crash because loss of faith in the integrity of published earnings triggered it. And his theory's continuing influence aggravated the 1930s Great Depression, its depth and its length. So if I understand what you're saying, it's that accounting that's based on Irving Fisher's theory allows management to swindle shareholders, deceive them by manipulating accounts. But the shareholders weren't completely deceived. Ultimately, they didn't trust the published accounts. Eventually, enough of them didn't accept the rosy picture of future profits and the values of companies that the published accounts painted. And that led to the crash of 1929. And because Fisher's theory remained influential after that, published accounts remained untrustworthy. So the Great Depression in the U.S. was deeper and longer lasting than it otherwise would have been the case. Have I gotten that right? Yes. Shareholders were deceived during the boom by accounts that used the flexibility in Fisher's theory to report a rosy picture of smoothly growing profits. 
but also by the belief that they could extrapolate this growth into the future to value shares. Ultimately, as you say, shareholders didn't trust the published accounts, stopped believing in their integrity when it became clear in late 1929 that management had manipulated them. And this, I argue, caused a crash and explains its trajectory, its speed, depth and length, not simply evidence that the rate of profit was falling. After the crash, due to Fisher's continuing, if now unacknowledged, influence over accountants and policymakers, it took until 1937 before the SEC used its powers to force management to give up exclusive control of accounts. To me, this is a new explanation of the Great Depression. Does it differ from other accounts that you've encountered, standard accounts of historians, and if so, how? Chapter 3 applies Marx's theory of crisis to the great collapse in America 1929 to 1932 and uses the accounting interpretation to evaluate historians and orthodox Marxists' explanation. Such as which historians, which orthodox Marxists are you referring to? The book evaluates the work of leading historians such as J.K. Galbraith and R.S. McIlvany, but also many others. By orthodox Marxists, I mean such as Baron and Sweezy, but mostly I focus on a 1994 paper by James Devine. You take issue with their explanations. Yes, the evidence, I argue, better supports Marxist theory, which explains the origin of the crisis in reactions to the falling generator profit from the mid-1920s and historically low corporate profit rates. Increased concentration and centralization, an increased rate of exploitation, increased borrowing, exceptional speculation, and swindling. Historians and orthodox Marxists, by contrast, explain the boom as irrational speculation. The crash as its irrational consequence, and the recession by underconsumption. Chapter 4 analyzes the impact of accounting theory on the stock market boom, 1920s stock market boom, and 1929 crash. The popularity of Fisher's accounting theory, together with what knowledgeable observers recognized as Fisher's new theory of security analysis, it argues, explains shareholder supposedly irrational behavior. The new theory boosted the so-called speculative bubble by legitimating share valuation using reported earnings, on which the evidence shows investors fixated. And it argues that a loss of confidence in their integrity explains the 1929 crash. Investors were wrong in believing they could value shares using reported accounting earnings, but this does not mean they were irrational because the repeated assertion that they could became the accepted wisdom with unimpeachable intellectual foundations to the highly educated, the best advice money could buy. Many corporations reported sustained earnings growth during the later 1920s, which fell from mid-29, a trend which became clear in September 1929, and the stock market faltered. The S&P 500 index fell from 30.76 on 7th October 1929 to 20.3 by 11th November. Historians like J.K. Galbraith explain this turning point and the subsequent crash as an irrational exit. The evidence, however, supports the hypothesis that adding fear to uncertainty. In early October 1929, the realization dawned on sophisticated investors that the falling earnings figures could themselves not be trusted. I do not have the time to review the evidence here, but it shows that rather than irrationality, these two factors, slowing reported earnings growth and loss of faith in their integrity, 
caused the timing of the crash, just as their opposite had caused the boom. Okay, so you're saying that accounting played a role in creating the Great Depression. I believe you also say that it made it longer and deeper than it otherwise would have been the way that accounting is practiced in the United States. What roles did accounting play in all of this, creating, deepening, and extending the Depression of the 30s? Well, first, it created the conditions for the Depression by fostering the boom, by overstating earnings and suppressing risk, which undermined management's accountability for capital, which allowed overinvestment, underconsumption, overproduction, and sectoral imbalances. Second, accounting deepened the depression because during the crash, investors lost confidence in its integrity. And after the crash, management continued to be unaccountable, which fostered a continuing lack of investor confidence and underconsumption during the 1930s. Insufficient demand by the wealthy and middle class investors for consumption or investment. Third, accounting theory prolonged the depression because although Fisher became unpopular after the crash, and his name disappeared from public debate, his theory survived and hindered economic recovery because it fettered economic and accounting reform and the effective devaluation of capital. How did it do that? Well, first, the continuing influence of Fisher's theory during the 1930s reforms allowed management and the accounting profession to avoid government control of accounting in the Securities Acts of 1933 and 1934, which reformers saw as necessary for controlling big business. Second, it allowed the profession to reject the SEC's demands for uniformity, which allowed continued management discretion, which it used to avoid effective devaluation. That is, plant closures and asset disposals, and to overstate the rate of profit. Many corporations made large book write-downs, but usually against capital surplus, which avoided reporting losses. And by reducing future depreciation charges, the write-downs allowed them to report profits and recommence paying dividends. But the reality was little actual devaluation or destruction of capital, continuing overcapacity. Under pressure to restore investors' confidence and counter unions' demand that corporations open the books, in 1937, weary of resistance to uniformity, an exasperated SEC demanded that corporations produce conservative accounts, shift towards British conservatism. It forbade economic valuation, prohibited write-downs against capital, and threatened to specify accounting rules if the profession did not produce generally accepted accounting principles. In 1939, the profession gave its recently formed Committee on Accounting Procedure the task of writing and enforcing GAAP. But by the mid-1950s, it was clear they had failed. Yeah, let me just say, Rob mentioned the SEC. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. That is the federal regulator of the stock market and other securities exchanges in the United States. Okay, so you were saying that the profession in 1939 gave a committee that had formed the task of writing and enforcing GAAP, the generally accepted accounting principles, but by the mid-1950s, it was clear that they had failed to do so. Why did they fail? They failed because although economic valuation was discredited, the alternative was vilified as Marx's cost theory of value, which it was implicitly. That was, of course, ideologically unacceptable. So Fisher's theory continued to frame accounting regulation from the late 1930s. 
so is your point that Gap and Fisher's theory aren't ultimately compatible? And if so, if they're not compatible, why aren't they? Yes, they're incompatible because the objective of Fisher's theory is what today the Financial Accounting Standards Board, the FASB, calls decision usefulness, which, like Fisher, requires economic valuation based on expected cash flows, not stewardship, which, as I said, requires the realized rate of profit, which is based on cost. Thank you. I get it. Yeah. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the Great Recession. But first, to set the stage, let's talk about what happened in the decades leading up to 2007. There was a long boom following World War II that ended with the global recession of the early 1970s. And after that recession, there was no new boom. Instead, there were decades of economic growth, but it was sluggish economic growth. My first question then to you is, why was that the case? No new boom, sluggish economic growth. I've argued that the U.S. government wanted to prevent another full-scale depression. So it covered over the problems with more and more debt-financed spending. And that worked in a certain sense, but it also dampened the destruction and devaluation of capital value. And that devaluation and destruction of capital value, however, restores profitability and rapid economic growth, and that wasn't happening. Based on your research, do you agree with this explanation of the persistent economic malaise? I do agree with it. The evidence clearly shows that the rate of profit failed to recover significantly from the lows of the 1970s and 1980s which is consistent with your explanation that government policies curtailed the devaluation of capital, which explains the persistent low economic growth. Good. Now we can get to the important point you have to add. Additional insights based on your accounting perspective. Can you talk about whether corporate management's ability to manipulate accounts, did that contribute to the insufficient destruction and devaluation of capital value or the mounting debt problems? Chapter 6 supports your explanation by showing that during the 1970s and 1980s, management also wanted to prevent the Second Great Depression, or at least to avoid the consequences of one for their own corporations by resisting the necessary accounting for devaluation. One of accounting's most important roles is enforcing devaluation through requiring management to value all assets using what regulators call value to the owner or deprival value rules which, like the insurance market, measures the economic loss incurred if an owner were deprived of an asset. The basis of those rules is replacement cost accounting. During the 1970s and 80s, management avoided these rules, avoided the destruction of capital by drawing on accounting theory to avoid, water down, and then ditch replacement cost accounting, which it allowed it to overstate profits and accumulate more debt. Can you give us a rough idea? First of all, the problems that management faced during that period. And second, how the accounting changes that management demanded helped it to address those problems and how these solutions so-called exacerbated the long-term economic sluggishness. At the heart of management's problems was that although the replacement cost rate of profit fell to the early 1980s, High rates of inflation meant that its published historical cost accounts showed increasing profits. 
in the face of public criticism, wage demands, and to make the case for tax cuts, in the early 1970s, management agitated for what became popularly known as inflation accounting to reduce reported profits, which prompted the so-called inflation accounting debate. Management generally wanted what accounting theorists called current purchasing power accounts, adjusting published historical cost accounts for general price inflation. But this would not enforce devaluation, which informed opinion agreed required replacement cost accounting and deprival value rules. Replacement cost adjustments reveal sharply lower profits, so low that they show dividends came substantially from capital, implying large-scale capital destruction and devaluation was necessary, and avoiding this became management's dominant problem. To resist replacement cost accounting, management now used Fisher's theory to agitate for what accounting theorists call monetary adjustments. In the early 1980s, regulators eventually imposed what they called current cost accounting, which was based on replacement cost, but heeded management's demands by including monetary adjustments, which counteracted and camouflaged its effects. However, as inflation fell in the early 1980s, but the current cost rate of profit remained significantly below the historical cost rate, management used theorist criticisms of replacement costs to justify increasingly simply ignoring the requirement to publish current cost accounts and to demand its abolition, which regulators accepted in the mid-1980s. Accounting history therefore supports your argument that the rate of profit failed to recover to pre 1970s level because of insufficient devaluation of capital. It was in part, my history shows, because accounting theory allowed management to resist rigorously implementing replacement cost accounting, which would have been required from the early 1970s to enforce the necessary devaluation of capital and allowed management to ditch it before its work was finished. Right. So this is a very significant contribution in my view. I mean, what I had focused on was fiscal and monetary policy, government policy, in preventing the full-scale destruction and devaluation of capital value. You're saying, look also at the companies themselves, the managements of the companies did, it was pulling in the same direction. They had their own self-interest. Exactly so. Okay, so let's turn to this great recession of about 15 years ago. As everybody recognized at the time, 2008, 2009, there was a lot of swindling that led to and aggravated the global financial crisis. But the Financial Accounting Standards Board, the FASB, began operating in the early 1970s. It was supposed to put accounting of public companies in the U.S. on a sound footing. So what went wrong? Why did the FASB and its standards fail to rein in the swindling? They failed because management's refusal to relinquish control of accounting caused the collapse of the accounting profession's standard-setting process, which lost credibility in the mid-1950s, and did it again in the late 1960s. The FASB's primary aim from its creation in 1973, in response to the 1960s crisis, was to produce what it called a conceptual framework to prevent another crisis by taking control of accounting choice from management. But resorting to Fisher's theory meant the profession's claim victory was pyrrhic because within it, management retains discretion. The big hole is its definition of an asset from which much follows. According to the FASB's Statement of Financial Accounting Concepts Number 3, 
I quote, assets are probable future economic benefits obtained or controlled by a particular entity as a result of past transactions or events. The problems with the definition are first that it leaves open what exactly the entity controls. Is it A, the assets underlying use values, or B, access to its future economic benefits, the ability and practice to obtain them? This ambiguity allows structuring transactions to, to achieve or relinquish control, giving management choice whether to recognize an asset or not. Second, it leaves open how to identify and measure the expected future economic benefits. For this, the FASB inevitably turned to management's judgment, left it to management to judge whether future economic benefits existed and were probable. In Chapter 8, I examine how the FASB's asset definition allowed the proliferation of U.S. Bank Securitization, SPEs, Special Purpose Entities. These SPEs, I argue, facilitated the swindling that underlie the 2007 credit crunch, triggering the so-called global financial crisis of 2008-2009. U.S. GAAP allowed off-balance sheet accounting for securitization SPEs, allowing banks to remove mortgage debts from their balance sheets and keep the SPEs liabilities off the balance sheet. In this way, as critics predicted, management used the FASB's framework as a template to structure transactions to achieve desired accounting outcomes. By justifying off-balance sheet accounting, the evidence shows accounting theory justified extensive swindling. You've talked about the 1920s all the way up really until the present day. What are the general lessons we can draw from your Marxist accounting history? Well, I think there are two main lessons. The first is for capitalists. It is that socially rational accounting is impossible in modern capitalism because the only ideologically acceptable accounting theory is pathological. Pathology is the study of disease, which in Marxian accounting means not holding management accountable for the ray of profit, which allows swindling, which facilitates and aggravates crises. Fisher's theory undermines accountability because it is an ideologically distorted managerial representation of capitalism, creating the big mass argued, designed to reconcile America's simple commodity producers and semi-capitalist manufacturers to late 19th century big business and money capitalism, and undermines support for socialism. Its price, accounting for crises, concludes is an accounting theory that sanctifies managerialist ideology as unalterable reality, which means financial accounting has no coherent, generally accepted and comprehensive theory, and it never will. Okay, so that's the big mess, and we're still in it. But why can't it be reformed? Why do you say that's impossible? Creating the big mess argues that Marxian accounting would eliminate management's discretion, but it would be ideologically unacceptable and would not abolish crises, but in Marxist theory increases their possibility and would not prevent speculation or other forms of swindling. Accounting for crises argues that Marxian accounting would have shortened the 1930s Great Depression and produced a second but shorter Great Depression in the early 80s profitability crisis and avoided the 2008-2009 recession. However, it would have increased their severity which also makes Marxian accounting unacceptable because the Great Depression showed that a severe depression, as it nonetheless was, radicalizes workers, threatening unwelcome political consequences. 
So the solution to the counting mess would have its own consequences. The cure might be worse than the disease. The cure would be severe depressions, destruction of capital value, etc. Yes? Yeah, exactly, sir. Okay. Yeah, so you said there was one lesson for the capitalists, and that's it. There's another one, yes? The second lesson from Marxist accounting history is the workers. Accounting history supports Marx's aim in developing his law of the tendential falling rate of profit, which he said was the most important law of political economy because explaining to workers how it underlay capitalism's bitter contradictions, crises and spasms, as he put it, would create the necessary mental conditions for socialism. Workers should understand that Fisher's theory facilitates crises, but cloaks their reality, represents them as financial, preventable by reforms, misleading them, generations of reformers, radicals, and even many Marxists, rather than inevitable crises that society can eliminate only by replacing capitalism. Understanding Marxian accounting and the role of accounting theory in facilitating and aggravating crises should convince workers that a society in which rational accounting is impossible has outlived its usefulness. Demonstrating Marx's law to workers would be politically revolutionary because it would show them that capitalism's ability to deliver economic process is inherently limited. But one reason for worker indifference is that Marxists have often claimed it as false. TSSI proponents refute this claim by, in effect, I argue, showing that its basis is incorrect Marxian accounting, which workers must therefore understand to allow them to focus on the law and its political implications. Some Marxists seek to demonstrate the law empirically and use it to explain crises, but these studies have generated controversies, and, I have argued, to deal with them also requires understanding Marxian accounting. Finally, perhaps the most important lesson is that while rational accounting is impossible within capitalism, a coherent, generally accepted and comprehensive set of Marxian accounting standards for day one of socialism remains a possibility if Marxists take accounting seriously and if critical accountants take Marxist theory of history and capitalism seriously. Thank you. We could go on. I have so many questions, so much I would like to discuss with you, but we have a limited time uh, for the podcast. So we're going to have to wrap up here. This has been episode 111 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast from deep within capitalist society. Thanks for listening. Please visit MHI's website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes, to learn more about the issues we discuss, to post comments, and to donate to the podcast series. Until next time, goodbye.